You know, this title can seem misleading because when we use the word carnality, we're talking about Christ and not carnality. And I believe that's the whole thrust of this letter that, that Paul is writing to the church at Colossae. We might have our Bible studies and we might have words thrown around like Gnosticism, dealing with the knowledge of man and what have you, and, and his perceptions, what have you. And it is prevalent in this letter. But it's not something that we think about with regard to our lives. And so when we talk about many of these things with regard to carnality, many times we think of the flesh and we think of morality issues. You know, adultery and drunkenness and so on and so forth. And those things are addressed in this letter. But you know, there's something every bit as harmful to our souls with regard to carnality. That's just even the way we believe in Jesus Christ. Some don't even think about it from that standpoint, but that's exactly what Paul is dealing with here in this second chapter. The belief that we can have limitations placed upon our Savior because of our preconceived ideas. That, you know, well, we know that God is good because He is spirit, and spirit is good. And we know that man is flesh, and, well, flesh is evil, full of sin. So, therefore, God could not have been flesh. And that's where a lot of this letter he's dealing with. But it's a mindset that had crept into the Lord's church so that those in the body of Christ had this belief about the Christ. And it's a carnal way of thinking. And it's every bit as dangerous as walking according to the flesh. And in addition to that is the way we serve our Lord. That in our wisdom... We magnify how great we are to say, here's how we can serve our God. And the more pious and the more religious we are, the better we are in service to the Lord. And what we begin to do is minimize Jesus Christ and magnify mankind. And that's why this letter is being written. When we limit the fullness of Jesus as being divine or deity in bodily form, just as he was teaching here in this second chapter, And when, in addition to that, we make man-made commandments, we have religious teachings that we make up, we find principles in scriptures and we say, okay, here's what we can do. Take from these principles and now make laws concerning them. And that's how we'll draw closer to God. And that's how we'll stand very firm for the faith. What we actually end up doing is patting ourselves on the back and magnifying ourselves. And we don't even realize we may be doing it. And when we do that, we minimize our Savior. Now, what I'm wanting to say is that everything that is being spoken of here, and we're going to just go through part of this letter uh, pretty quickly this morning and, and hit those highlights that bring the points that we are talking about right here with the note that we live our whole lives to the glory of God according to His will. Everyone agrees to that. I would think everyone would agree to that here. But we have to do some self-evaluation and look whether or not we're in the faith and doing the very thing that we espouse doing and shunning everything we wish to shun that would take away from our Savior. Remember, everything is about Jesus Christ. It's not about us. And we know that right here, but sometimes our lifestyle and the way we go about doing things may show otherwise. And so we want to minimize Uh, ourselves and maximize our Savior in contrast to what goes on among men. 
And the first thing I want us to, to note, if we're going to back up and look at the things that, that Phil was reading for us and kind of see where that information was coming from, where was the, the backdrop to those statements about how we can maximize our Savior and minimize ourselves, it starts off in chapter 1. And, and this even goes back to, I think, a conversation we were having Either it was this, yes, it was this morning. Chris, I think, was mentioning it in a Bible class. She was talking about how we need to have this knowledge if we're going to have fellowship with God, if we're going to have a relationship with God and not have him say to us, I don't know who you are. It's got to come with this knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. And, and even with that concept of this knowledge is what we do with it and how we relate to our God. And so in the first chapter, I want us to read verses 9 through 12 and notice some things that Paul says regarding the preeminence of our Savior. For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual knowledge, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to His glorious power, for all patience and long-suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. All this knowledge he's talking about is the knowledge of God according to His knowledge. It's spiritual understanding or spiritual knowledge we're talking about and not man-made or man-given knowledge, if you will. And so everything is about Jesus Christ. He is over all things. He made all things, and all things belong to Him. If we can understand that, just as was given here, and revealed in these few verses that we just read, then we can know how to walk. Because it's not according to what Mitch thinks is the best way to glorify God. It's what God says, here is how I am well pleased. Live this way, think this way, and you'll be pleasing to me. And so when we have all this spiritual knowledge, spiritual understanding, all to God's glory, then we're able to walk in a worthy manner. Now, this is not something we don't already know. But again, it's not just right here. It's the way we actually go about speaking and living our lives that proves where our knowledge comes from, where our lifestyle is based on. And so we can walk in a manner that is well-pleasing to Him. We can do everything in all respects, well-pleasing to Him because of this particular knowledge. And as a result, then we can bear fruit. We can bear fruit worthy of this walk that we have in the name of the Lord. And then finally, we'll see that when we do this, we'll also continue to increase in the knowledge of God. Now, all of this so far, to me, I think everyone here should already know. If we don't know this, this is, I mean, this is so basic. This is first principle stuff. But again, it's not book knowledge that we're after. We're after the kind of things so that when we have that rubber meet the road, and now we're actually doing things like our singing, the way we worship, the way we pray, the way we speak to one another about Jesus Christ, that we magnify His name through that speech because of this understanding that we have. It's not just something that mom and dad or the preacher or the elders handed down for generations and just the way it is. And that we have these ways of doing things that we can say, well, this is because and so on and so forth. But it's not necessarily from God's word. We just 
equate it with God's word. When we are filled with this spiritual understanding, then we can know that it's about Jesus Christ. It is because he rescued us and transferred us from the domain of darkness that we belong to him. And thus, our understanding has to be based upon his will. In verse 13 following, he says, he delivered us from the power of darkness, conveyed us unto the kingdom of his son, of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, all things were created that are in heaven that are on earth, visible and invisible, where the thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And that's the thing we need to understand right here. Once we understand it's not just through him, but for him, then it's not about us. Everything that we do is but a blip on the radar. He has this whole big picture and we're just that blip on that radar screen that says we belong to you. How can I be of service to your will? Not how can I serve you according to my will of you? That was the problem with the Israelites. That's what we're talking about this morning in first Samuel uh, chapters four, five and in particular six and seven. When the Israelites finally understood it was not about them, but about God. They were able to repent and able then to lean upon him and give glory to him according to his terms, not theirs. And the same is true for us today. And so we see this translation that we have. We have this redemption, the forgiveness of our sins because of what he has done for us. And then we go further on and we read verses 15 through 20 and realize that everything that we do then is for his glory. Verse 15 following. It said, or, um, actually, verse 17 following, he says, he, bought, he was before all things, and in him all things consist. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. When we talk about church, hopefully it's with this mindset that's all within and under the confine of the headship of our Savior. Again, knowing it is one thing, showing that in the way we live is another. Sometimes it seems in conversations or the way things are handled, maybe sometimes in, in some of the Bible studies I've heard, it's as if without realizing we put the church at the very top and somehow the head is somewhere in there. But it's always about Jesus Christ. Everything is about him. That's why God created before the foundation of this world, his son to be the preeminence of all things, that the kingdom would belong to him, that our lives belong to him. Everything we do is in Jesus Christ. That's the whole message of the gospel. That's why when we talk about the false teachers that are in here, they would take away from Christ. You know, going back to the old law, taken away from Christ, adding these teachings, taken away from Christ, limiting who Christ is, taken away from his glory. And the things that happened in the first century easily take place today. You ever heard of the Jesus Seminar? Any of you ever heard of that? The Jesus Seminar. It's all these professional Bible scholars. And it's the most ironic thing to even call them professional Bible scholars. Because most of them don't even believe many of the things that we read of here in Scripture. The irony of it all. We get too smart for our own good sometimes. 
as individuals professing to be Christians. If we take anything away from Jesus Christ, we jeopardize our souls. It is through His preeminence that we even have the ability to look our Father face to face on the day of judgment and hear Him call us into the heavenly realm. It's all because of Jesus Christ. And that's the point that he's making right here in this first chapter so that when we get to the second chapter and with what Phil read for us, then we can understand some of the points above what's being proclaimed. So in verse 40, uh, 24 through 28, notice the things that he had done as a result of the preeminence of Jesus Christ. And then we look at the second chapter. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings, verse 24 of chapter 1, for you. I rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is his church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, that the mystery which had been hidden from ages and from generations has been revealed now to his saints. To them, God will to make known what are the riches of the glory of the mystery among Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It is him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom. I would even add spiritual wisdom, which is the context that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus to this. end, I labor striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. Paul understood everything belonged to Jesus Christ. God gave him everything. It's his kingdom. It's his kingdom to the very end when he hands it back to the Father. Until then, Christ is king. He is our Lord. He's our Savior. And every breath we make, it's because of his sovereignty. And so, are we filled or filled with the afflictions that Christ did not endure? You know, Paul was called to be an apostle and he was called to be afflicted in this way. We may not necessarily necessarily have the same exact calling. But I'll tell you what, in every which way that we live to glorify our God, we may also endure afflictions that Christ did not. And some might say, well, how is that possible? You know, Christ just went through everything. Well, didn't Paul endure afflictions that Christ didn't? I mean, when Christ was risen to heaven, the work continued on. The work of the good news, that is. And Paul, among other apostles, went and preached the gospel and as a result had been persecuted for the cause of Christ. And that's what afflictions he is speaking of there. And we continue on the afflictions that Paul has not endured. And other Christians through the centuries have not endured. They've gone on. Do we proclaim to the glory of God and possibly endure afflictions for the cause of Christ the way the apostle did? When we do it, we live to his glory. Do we preach the mystery of Christ to make known the riches found in him? Or can we be guilty like the Pharisees were? Where we look far and wide looking for a precious soul. And when we find them, just as Jesus said, we may make that individual twice the son of hell. How are we living? What's our walk like? How do we believe in Jesus Christ? That would bring him ultimate glory. Well, it's either by our wisdom 
or His. And so if we admonish and teach every man to present himself complete in Christ, then it's got to be about Jesus Christ. We have to understand that. And not about us. And so it's all about Christ, not about man. So I want you to note these extremes now that are taking place here in the second chapter and how it pertains to us today. The first thing that we note then is that those who minimize Jesus Christ jeopardize their souls. That's the point that he's making from verses 8 through 15 here in, in the second chapter. Notice what's being said. He said in verse 8 of chapter 2, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. According to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, not according to Christ. For in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He made it very clear who Jesus Christ is right then and there. And that's our belief system, or should be. And you are complete in Him, who is the head of all principality and power. In Him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with Him in baptism, in which you also were raised with Him through faith in the working of God, who raised Him from the dead. Stop and think about this. In addition to the, the carnal wisdom that the Gentiles were guilty of, the Jews were also guilty. The ones who are religious, the ones who had a covenant relationship with God, were also guilty of carnal wisdom. And he let them know, the circumcision which you have is the one made without hands. Not the ones that some of these who profess to be Christians are binding upon you. Those who come into the flock and among you and spy out your faith, if you will. And then he goes on to say in verse 13, And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses. He's letting these Gentiles know, listen, here's how you came into Christ. It was not according to some of these teachings that these men have in the name of religiosity, if you will. But according to Christ, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, he took it and nailed it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. This is the same thing Paul told Timothy about this man-made wisdom. Or Paul told the churches or the church in Corinth. About this man-made wisdom, these strongholds that we are tearing down, he says. Because these strongholds are what hinder you from a full relationship that is found in Christ Jesus. You think you have a full relationship with God, but it's only through your wisdom and it will be brought down. And that's what Paul said, what the church is supposed to be doing. Bringing down these strongholds that supposedly many in the name of Christianity try to live by. We minimize Christ when we do that. The other thing is the self-made laws. And this is something I think is very prevalent to what goes on among many of brothers and sisters in Christ without even realizing it. I want you to look at the examples here, and then I'll, I'll just give one of those, those examples that we may be guilty of today. Beginning in verse 16, Paul continues with this thought and says, so then, let no one judge you in food or in drink 
or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. And not holding fast to the head, from whom all the body, nourished, knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourself to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion. False humility, neglect of the body, but of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. You see, in the first century, yet all kinds of, of Judaizing teachers, various groups. The Essenes would have been one of them. First, you've got the Pharisees and you have the Sadducees. And you could just note the baggage that they brought into the body of Christ with their beliefs. Whether it's binding circumcision, as we were reading earlier in the chapter, or binding various laws upon one another, and the Gentiles were no better. They did the same thing. You know, if you're going to be a really, really good Christian, you'll never eat meat. Period. I had a chiropractor that told me I was in sin because I ate meat. He said, Mitch, if you really were a Christian, you would go back to the beginning of the scriptures in the book of Genesis and realize man never had meat to begin with. Later on, meat was brought in. See? Fallen man. If you want to get rid of your back problems, <laughs> what he implied was stop eating meat. I couldn't imagine self-imposed religion. And brethren, all we have to do is just look around and see if we do the same thing. And we do it in a manner that says, that's why we are so faithful to God, because we don't do this, we don't do this, we do this, and we have self-imposed, man-made commandments. Sure looks good on surface. And everyone would say, well, the church over here at Franklin does this, this, and doesn't do all these things. Wow. If, if that's the mindset, self-imposed commandments, then we're missing the picture and we start maximizing us and minimizing our Savior. And don't even realize it. Now, I want to say this. In civil regulations, no matter where they are, and it could be in family regulations, you're going to say, here's the rules for this household, or here are the rules for this school, or here's the rule for this business operation or organization. That's perfectly fine. But when the church comes along and says, now, here's what you need to do. Every day at 1116, you get on your knees, and you get your face down to the ground, and you rub it into the ground, because that will show how prostrate you've been. In fact, over the years, you'll get good scarring on your head and on your knees. And everyone will know how religious you are. Because we're supposed to be praying without ceasing, right? So guess what? 11.16 and every morning, that's what you do. That's a ludicrous example that you all could agree to. 
But think about things that go on in the body of Christ where we start making up rules on X, Y, and Z. One of those rules that I was told by a brother in Christ when I was back in Georgia, uh, when he was younger, was when the church would have, you know, for the Lord's Supper, all the containers. And someone lost the lid to the containers. You know what they put in front of that, that cover so the flies wouldn't get in there years ago? Cloth. Someone thought the world was coming to an end. You can't do that. You have to have the container. That's the scriptural way. I mean, what went on for the mind to even believe? That's self-imposed, man-made regulations that, that some would even come to believe in. And we might go inside, well, that's kind of far-fetched, but that's what some brethren believed. And it happens. And it continues to happen today. Whatever the carnal extreme of the mindset, and I'm not even talking about immoral living. I'm just talking about what we do to make self-imposed religion in the name of serving our Lord and binding it upon one another. Or minimizing our Savior, just as was taking place in the first century and it's taking place today among those who call themselves Christians. Whatever those extremes are, they jeopardize our stand in the Lord. This is a very, very important lesson for us to apply to our lives and kind of take stock in the things that we do. Take stock in your life, how you live your life. When Paul was talking about the meats, in the case of 1 Corinthians chapter 9 or chapter 10 or even chapter 6, Romans chapter 14, you have those that were saying, you know, you can't eat these meats because they've been offered to idols. But can you imagine self-imposed religion from that standpoint? Paul is saying, listen, whether you eat or you don't eat, you're not getting any closer to God from that standpoint. The food belongs to God. If you're going to eat, eat it to the glory of God. If you're not going to eat those meats, do it unto the glory of God. And when it comes to immoral living, now there's another issue that we need to deal with. That's not self-imposed religion. It's what God's word has revealed to us. We've got to stand fast and firm in living upright lives based upon the revealed word of God. But right here in this section of scripture, Paul is dealing with those, even among brothers and sisters in Christ. Who would exalt in themselves because of their man-made teachings or because of the minimizing of our savior. The bottom line is, if we're going to grow in Christ Jesus and have the fullness of Him, have the knowledge of Him, have the relationship with Him, then we've got to put on the new man, and it's about Him. Putting on His clothing, if you will. Putting on the new man found in Jesus Christ. And so we'll seek those things above. In other words, we'll speak, seek the spiritual understanding. Not the man-made understanding of spiritual things. And that's what we see here in Philippians chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. We'll consider our fleshly members as dead that we can actually live our lives not trying to fulfill the desires of the flesh, but putting that man of the flesh to death. That's what Romans chapter 7 was about. That's what Paul is saying. The same thing here in the third chapter, when you read this third chapter, by putting off that old man of sin. And when you can do that, then you have a man that grows into Christ and becomes the image of our Savior. Isn't that what God wants for us? To be the image of his son. To bear that image. So that when, when someone looks at Phil. 
they'll see Jesus Christ. When someone looks at Robbie, they see Jesus Christ. When they look at Tim, they see Jesus Christ. Because what we're doing is we're magnifying his name, glorying his name, and living according to his name, and not all the things that somehow, look at how good this person is and what he does and doesn't do. And we start taking away from our Savior. Brethren, that's the concept that we have. From our singing, to our prayers, to our conversations with each other. It's all about Him. It's not about us. When we learn that, we grow into the righteousness of God that He has for us. When that happens, finishing out the the body of this message, if you will, we have the peace of Christ ruling in our hearts. That's what we have. In addition to that, God's Word richly dwells in us because we have His Word the spiritual wisdom, the spiritual understanding revealed to us and growing in our lives that very life that we have. That's why we can use that passage in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Let the Word of God richly dwell within you. That's what we're talking about. That's what Paul was dealing with when we understand it's about Jesus Christ and not man. And when that happens, then everything we do, we do with thanksgiving because we know it's from God for Him. Through Jesus Christ. Brethren, I hope that this lesson helps you take stock in things that may be going on in in the way you live. In the way you live your life for the Lord. And look at the things that are going on in the body of Christ. So that when we look to this world, we can reach a lost and dying world. And bring them to the glory of God. Not the glories of men. Not all the things that we do. It's not about us. It's about magnifying His name.